Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. I want to look at real community. Now, it's funny when, when we were, Pete asked me to kind of address the, the three anchors, las tres anclas. There you go. If you need some Spanish branding, there you go, right there. Um, there's so many passages in the New Testament that talk about community that it was hard for me to pick one. Romans 12, love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love that. Outdo one another. A battle to honor other, each other. No, after you. No, after you. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's loving. Ephesians 4. Lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's one of my favorites. Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. I mean, have you ever thought today, what can I do today to provoke love and good deeds in my friends? I was, you know, not neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some. You know, writer of Hebrews, he's not the first guy that had trouble at church attendance. But encouraging one another all the more as the day, that's when Jesus comes back, is approaching. The New Testament is filled with these passages. We often call them the one another passages because community is no secondary theme of Scripture. For the New Testament writers, there is an inseparability to following Jesus and belonging to his community. The fact that we try to separate them, even if we don't intend to at all, is crazy. Yes, it is Christ alone who saves us, but it is through his body, his body, that we are nurtured. While each one of us as individuals reflects the image of God, it is in community together that we best reflect him. After all, God is three in one, a perfect community himself. So it should be no surprise that as followers of Jesus, the life we have in Jesus is best lived in communion with others. That's your theological stuff right there, all up front. To be a follower of Jesus means to be a part of the body of Jesus. John Stott was a great 20th, bit of 21st century pastor theologian. He said this, An unchurched Christian is a grotesque anomaly. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person. For the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. One thing I've noticed, um, and I like, man, the worship team, thank you guys so much. You're so sensitive to spirit, talented. I was a little jealous of Silas today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I've been waiting all afternoon to, to, to make that joke. 
But one thing I've noticed about, and, it, and we have some, but it seemed to me when I was younger um, that we had a lot of songs that we sang that were about being a part of the family of God. And I don't hear them quite as much anymore. I think maybe we think they're inappropriate because they're not like singing about Jesus. <laughs> and that says something about our understanding of the community of God. I, I grew up every Sunday night was like our kind of family-style church service, you know. And it seemed like every sat Sunday night, we, we kind of was casual and formal. The pastor wore a less dark suit, you know. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. <laughs> and, and we would often begin the service just kind of giving the peace. That's what you high church people said. Um, but we would sing a song that would be like, like something like this. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. You're like, Pete knows that, Deb knows that. Anybody else know that song? Period. I've been washed in the fountain. (laughs) Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. A lot of sod in songs back then because it rhymes with God. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. We had a lot of songs that sang about it because we understood that what church was was not attending an event, but it was the bringing together of people who had experienced the mercy and grace of King Jesus. So we could sing that, and it was an honor to what Christ had done for us. So are we going to be the church or not? Would you stand with me again as we read the word of the Lord Our text for this evening is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, capital S by the way, we were all baptized in one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, and free And we're all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot were to say, let me just pause here. You know how you kind of have a soundtrack in your mind about how Apostle Paul or somebody sounds like? Don't you think that if Paul was writing this, he was making like voices? You know, like, because this is funny, right? So let's just, I'm not, maybe I should do voice, but you know, I just love how he's like, he's, Paul is not just angry all the time. Let me just put it that way. He says, indeed, if the foot were to say, because I am not the hand, I don't know why, I just hear it that way. <laughs> I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear were to say, because I'm not the eye, I do not belong to the body. That would make, not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye... Where would be the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would be the sense of smell be? But as it is, and pay attention to this, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, listen to this, folks. The members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. 
and those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But listen again. But God has so arranged the body, giving greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care one for another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Gracious God, as we turn to your word for us, may the Spirit of God rest upon us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, in our living of it. Amen. Please be seated. I know this may surprise you looking at me now, but I wasn't always the cool hip man you see before you today. In elementary school, I was a bit of a nerd, and that was before hipster nerds existed. I was just a regular nerd, a geek, we used to say, or even we said dweeb. Did you guys even know that word? Okay. I wasn't exactly bullied, uh, but I wasn't on the inside of the cool group. I had the wrong clothes, the wrong address, wrong family connections, wrong haircut. The guy who cut my hair was a good, believing man. Um, And I think he knew what he was doing at some level. But to be fair, his main job was to lay asphalt. That was his day job. And because I think my parents either didn't have money or just didn't want to spend money, I would go down to the basement of Herb Siddle's house where one bulb in the dark smelling of mold, and he cut my hair. And it showed that my hair was cut by a man who spent most of his days on a steamroller. That was a bonus. I was smart enough, but not in the acceptable way. And as you all probably know, schoolyard recess is just a microcosm of a sinful, broken world we live in. And it wasn't any different in my fourth grade class at Oakville Elementary, South County. Thanks. Pete knows where South County is. All the cool boys played football, the American kind, so to be clear. And I wanted to play as well, but I was considered too small, too weird. My glasses were too large. And I was desperate to get into the football game, but I was actually more desperate to get into the cool club. Kevin Knopf, yes, his name was alliterated, was the leader of the cool group. He was the ultimate prep school kid, thick, wavy, blonde hair, blue eyes, expensive clothes with brands that I didn't even know existed until I met Kevin. His dad owned the largest home building company in our area, so the Knopf name was everywhere, you know, this project by Knopf. Richard Diffley, he was the tallest kid in class, so he was a cool kid because he was their enforcer. Todd Phillips was smooth-talking kid whose parents owned the Italian restaurant in our city that everyone who was rich and cool went to. He was what we considered exotic back then, and all the girls thought he was dreamy. He also punched me at recess. Yeah. Well, those were just the main cool guys, but there was also Terry DeRuin. She didn't play football, 
She was a tiny person, but she was the cute one in our class, and she had a fur coat, which back then wasn't a bad thing, but rather proved a sign of her wealth. I don't know what fourth grader wears fur, but Terry DeRuin did. And then there's Janine Barra, Kevin Knopf's girlfriend, of course. Her parents own the largest road and paving company in St. Louis. So already she and Kevin Knopf were a power couple for Oakville. I kept trying to get involved in the game and they just ignored me until I came up with what seems like an 80s movie plot plan. I was going to challenge them and the cool kids that, to a game of football so that they would deem me worthy of getting in to the cool club. The problem was that all the athletic kids were already on Kevin's team. We set the game for like two weeks in advance. We were nine flipping years old, man. We were thinking ahead. And it, we began to have practices, and I had tryouts, which was funny because the truth is there's only like five other people who were out on the outside of the group and me. So I formed my squad from the other non-cool crowd. I had Tom Greening. He was a tallish, slender kid. And I know my memory may not be solid, being I was nine, but I think he wore a green turtleneck every day. (laughs) Rain or shine. And that's not smart when your name is already Tom Greening. Because you took a lot of abuse. He also wore brown jeans. Who wears brown jeans? My wife has on. Those are khaki. He wore brown (laughs) jeans. My my wife, by the way, is the... uh, She's the upside-down acorn. I don't know if you notice acorn ladies, but she's got it together. So So Tom Greening was on my team. Eric and Mark Holtz, identical twin brothers. They were big guys, and it wasn't so much that they were uncool, except they kind of lived in a twin world, and they only talked to each other. And so that was just a bit odd. They kept on the outside. Jamie Yoon. He was the only immigrant family in our church, And he spoke another language, Korean. So obviously that made him a target. Sad world we live in. I told you, this is not a, you know, it's a recess, man. So he spoke Korean. My family was Pentecostal and we spoke in tongues. I guess the Korean was okay with me. I still speak in tongues. More than you all. (laughs) Look that one up. Okay. That's quoting Paul there, yeah. Then there's Danny Sebo. In our relatively upper middle class community, Danny was truly poor. This is sad, by the way. He was overweight, and he was called fatty by most of the kids. Looking back now, I don't even think I understand how difficult his life was. His family was the first rough household that I ever knew. And he was already left to fend for himself at age nine, most of the time. He wouldn't have been my choice for best friend, but he kind of adopted me as his. The day came for the big game. No one thought we had a chance. I don't think anyone actually bet on the game, but I think in my kind of stylized memory, the fifth and sixth graders may have had a pool. Um, We didn't have a chance. The game started, and I'm not making this up, by the way. None of these names are all real. 
And the game started, and I'm not lying, Terry DeRuin and Janine Barra actually brought pom-poms to cheer on their boys. The reality was the game was a lot closer than people imagined it was going to be. And little did I know when I had picked my team, picked, (laughs) that we had hidden talents on my ragtag squad. Tom Greening just happened to be the only kid I ever knew that was actually in ballet. The boy had hops. (laughs) He could jump. He did not run in direct lines, but the boy could leap. Jamie Yoon was actually quite an athlete. His dad apparently had been a famous Taekwondo master back in Korea. Jay had been training his whole life. Even at nine, he scored several running touchdowns that day. The Holtz twins actually came out of their shell. They were big guys, and they were the line. Danny Sebo was everything you thought he was going to be. He was really bad at sports, too. I was the quarterback because it was my idea. (laughs) (laughs) The score was tied at the warning bell for recess went off. I was chased out of the pocket. I didn't even know those terms back then, but that's what it was. And all we had left was a Hail Mary. Richard Diffley the cool kid enforcer, got loose. The twins had been holding him off all recess, and he got loose and came barreling at me. He was big. Out of nowhere, Danny Sebo laid Richard Diffley out. Somehow, because I am not an athlete, I let the ball go, threw it high, threw it as far as I could, and Mr. Ballet went above everybody else, including mean old Todd Phillips, and pulled it down for the winning touchdown. All of this happened because I was desperate to be identified with the Kevin Knoffs of this world. We all have such a strong drive in us to belong to the acceptable, the beautiful, the wealthy, the competent community. And there's something so powerful in us that drives us to do just about anything to get in with the community that we imagine is the best. We want to be identified with the strong herd. In a world in which we live, any sign of weakness is to be hidden or done away with, isn't it? That is why we have filters on social media to hide the fact that we don't look a certain way. In the middle of our world of trying to fit in, of belonging to the cool community, the strong herd, Paul gives us this radical alternative 
to community. And he says, in the body of Christ, we do not cover up the weaker parts, or he says, less presentable parts or less honorable parts. But instead, he says, we highlight them. Verse 23 again, and those members of the body we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor, and our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. In the body of Christ, there's no photo filters or Botoxing on the body of Christ. In fact, Paul says, if there are wrinkles on the body, we take a draw a big circle on them and point at them. If there's a little bit too much fat, it's like, let's wear big, bold, horizontal stripes. Let's make it obvious. That is crazy. Why in the world would we bring honor to these lesser, these weaker parts? What is going on here? Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, is dealing with a community that is splintered over a thousand different issues. And they've asked Paul, or maybe he's inserted himself, to sell help settle some of these disputes. In verse chapter 6, they are actually suing each other in court. Now, you got to remember, these house churches probably only had 20, 30, 40 people. This is not some mega church where you don't know each other on the other side. These are people who know each other and say, I'm taking you to court. And they're like arguing over that. Then they're fighting over communion. They're fighting over the blood and body of Jesus. And the rich are alienating the poor because the poor apparently have to stay back serving while the rich have time to come early and take communion on their own. They're divided on how to deal with the fact that they live in a pagan environment where there's idol worship, chapter 10. They're divided over issues of women in the church, chapter 11. And they're divided on the issue of sexuality. Some promoting abstinence within marriage to be spiritual. Others are sleeping with their mother-in-law. Yes, that's the Bible. A church to whom God says, greetings, saints. In the immediate chapter 12 context here, they're divided over the use of spiritual gifts the charismatic gifts of the Spirit in church. Some people apparently just are nonstop going at it. Some people are bothered by that. Paul is dealing with division over division over division. And it's almost like in the middle of this chapter 12, he just has had enough. He goes, I'm tired of dealing with the little squabbles you guys have. And Paul is not just concerned about getting along. He starts getting at the core of this thing. He goes, hey, guys, this is far more than getting along for Paul. The community of God is the witness, together is the witness to the world of Jesus. He said in Philippians, he says, it's like the community is the stars in the sky. Peter says in his book, the community of God is the royal priesthood, those who reconcile people to God. And and Paul says, I'm tired of this disunity because the church of God was meant to be something more. He cares for it because this mishmash of people 
of all varying backgrounds, Jewish and Greek and men and women, everybody. It's this smashing together of this ragtag group. It is God's handiwork. Because you guys are tearing it apart. You guys are tearing it apart. And so he says, you guys, we're like a body. We're linked at such a deep level. Hand and eye and ear and foot and nose. You you can't separate us. So Paul goes on and he says, this isn't just bad luck you got stuck with this crowd. This is God's arrangement. This is God's design. And even those lesser parts... Those are God's gift to you. And they should be the people you honor the most. Why has God arranged the body in this way? So that people of lesser status, different economic groups, people who lack social graces, people that lack maturity, why in the world would we honor these people? And Paul describes why in various ways. I want to say three things about why the body of Christ is this thing. Why does God arrange it this way? Interdependence, point number one, interdependence in the people of God, within the people of God, is the way of the kingdom. He makes the point very clearly that you... You know, if you're just an eye, you, you can't even do anything. You just see. The, the body imagery is this, this thing of interdependence. There is no body with just individual organs. The truth is, our American culture trains us to live in independence and not interdependence. We work in a different cultural setting, and everyone struggles with community, but this is something we Americans get wrong at the highest level. Everything is private, my choice, my decisions, my life. That's what we're told to believe. You know, not my circus, not my monkeys. We live by those kinds of rules, and they seem to us Americans as reasonable statements. This has nothing to do with me. And it works against this idea of interdependence. We set our own life goals. No one ever sets our goals. Set my goals. I think something about our social media also gets in the way of us being interdependent. Instead, we can be even more independent because all our information is in our hands. We're talking about our kids. Our, you, know, you guys don't know either because our kids are age. Like, before, well, before cell phones, mobile phones, I don't know what we call them in America. Mobile phones? I don't know. Cell phones. Yeah, sorry. Context switch. You know, like, when you had an appointment at seven with the friend, you showed up because you couldn't text, I'm going to be late. If your mom and dad says, I'm picking you up at 10, you had to be there. But even our technology allows us to squeeze out of 
social obligations. Thanks, Pete. I'm, I'm just telling you the truth. I'm just telling what's working against us, you know? I know people hate phone calls, right? Why is that? Because it's harder to say no. You feel trapped by it, don't you? Because it's easier to say, hey, I'm going to be late, or I can't come, or I canceled on you, because you're not engaging people directly. Now, it's just the world we live in. That's not a generational fault, but I'm just talking about the ways in which our world is training us in radical independence. Even our 24-7, everything's open. We set our own schedules. We don't have the same hours. No one eats at the same time within families, let alone in the broader culture. We have no conformity to cultural rhythms and social obligations that in most of the world, for most of history, kept us all on the same schedule. Complete, boundaryless cultural obligations. And so we're trained to live independently. And unfortunately, we bring that into the community of Jesus. We do not like obligations of the other. But Jesus says we're responsible for one another. I don't know if you ever heard of this, but there's something going on sociologically, and particularly in our own country, called the great sort. Anybody heard of this? Sociologists out there, a couple of you. With the increase of social media and other things, with the increase of culture wars that are happening, it is less and less and increasingly less likely that you will have contact with those who don't see the world the same way as you do. Literally, people are moving from blue state, moving to moving blue people living in a red state, moving to blue states, and vice versa. Politically, it's happening. But even the way the the, the, you guys know this, even the way social media works, that if you like this, you only see things that you like. You don't get the report of other kinds of news or other kinds of fashion. You only are given what you already agree with. And because of that, there is a separation going on in society into affinity groups. People who only are around or talking to or watching or doing the same things. So we come to the point where you're only around people who have nothing to challenge you with. You only are with people who are convenient for you to be around. This is terribly dangerous for the soul, let alone a country. G.K. Chesterton, the 20th century writer, he talked a lot about this in a very different way. He says, life in a big city can live anonymously. You can choose your own community. But he says, in a small town or in a family, things are different. He said this, we make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our neighbor. His point being this is that in a small community, you can't choose who you're going to be around. And that is God's gift to you. To use Paul's imagery, he says, 
You can't say, okay, all the eyes, let's come over here. <laughs> Woohoo, we're eyes. Woo! We see. And then all the ears would run over here, you know, <laughs> those stupid eyes. <laughs> they think they see. Hey, how's the radio sound? Ha <laughs> ha. You know what I'm saying? Paul's saying that that's essentially what happens. We get all, you know, into that thing that we are alone. We're so proud of who we are. And he says it rips apart the fabric of a body. And God has arranged the whole body, even the parts you don't like or don't understand, so that we can truly be the people of God. I'm afraid that in our contemporary American church world, we have become nothing else but a, the big sort, even in our church lives. I keep hopping around and to find the church that thinks exactly like I do, or has the same people that I like to hang around. Paul is going much further than simply saying we need to get along. He's talking about something far more fundamental. We're talking about God's arrangement of the body includes getting in the mess of real human relationships. I think the COVID pandemic has just increased our independence. You know, attendance in church has dropped mostly by about 35% across the board among evangelical churches. Because what we learned was is we could just listen to a podcast and it was probably better than our pastor anyway. We just want to get fed. Why would I need to go in if I can just download it? Because what has happened is we've seen church more as something that is useful to enhance our personal project self rather than a place to which we are made to contribute, putting others' needs before our own. So I simply ask you this question. Are you going to attend attend church or are you going to belong? Are you going to be church? I think Paul also is not just saying that we need to, this identification of the people of God is the way of the kingdom, but identification with the people of God teaches us that the way of weakness, the way of weakness, If you spell Chuck Norris in Scrabble, you win forever. When the boogeyman goes to sleep, he checks his closet for Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris ordered a Big Mac at Burger King and got one. Chuck Norris does not sleep. He waits. (laughs) I don't even know what that means, but I love that one. Chuck Norris can dribble a bowling ball. Chuck Norris is the reason why Waldo is hiding. (laughs) Chuck Norris can kill two stones with one bird. (laughs) 
and my favorite, Chuck Norris once punched a man in the soul. (laughs) Why do these jokes keep going far beyond a generation who's never even seen him? It's because it gets to the American thing that we abhor weakness. We want a Chuck Norris life. And yet, in the body of Christ, they're always talking about strength and weakness. Now Paul's saying, yeah, the weak, weak pieces in the body, they're the best. What is going on? I don't think Paul's saying, I want everyone to stay immature forever. Right? I don't, that's not Paul's point. Yes, you have, uh, you know, he's not saying, continue in your sin, it's okay. Stay weak. That's not the kind of weakness he's talking about. We abhor weakness. You know, we never want to let people see us sweat. Nothing is ever heavy. It's just awkward. Europeans think this is funny. This next thing. We don't take full vacations. Europeans, man. Like, we were just, our son just got a new job, and they go, oh, why, not, why isn't your son and his new wife come to Spain in the summer? I'm like, he, he doesn't get any vacation. You know, and he says, "Well, when he gets more comes, of, you know, he gets more time in his company, they'll give him vacation." Oh yeah, they'll get it, but he'll have to stay back because vacation is weakness. And if you fall behind by taking rest, things are going to get bad. Even when we try to do weakness, we don't do it well. You get an interview. What is your biggest weakness? I think it's because I work too hard. <laughs> I just, you know. We invented the humble brag. Because we can't really say we're bad. And more subtly and more dangerous, if you're not if you're very long in the Christian bubble, we find out what are the weaknesses, the public weaknesses that we're allowed to share in a small group that don't make you actually look that bad. You know, I just, I don't believe in myself enough. Now, that may be a real weakness. But you know what I'm saying? We find the ones that are acceptable. But God says, identify with weakness. God's arranged the body in such a way so that we can avoid the fact that we are fallen and broken people. And when we see the sins of others, all of a sudden we begin to see sins in ourselves if we walk in humility. And when we embrace weakness as a community and as an individual, all of a sudden we're free to serve. Sometimes I think in our pursuit of finding ourselves, of creating a personal distinctiveness, of creating our own brand, so to speak, I wonder even in the Christian world if we are so concerned about self-knowledge that we create more walls than bridges. We're so preoccupied with spiritual gifts tests or Enneagram or whatever. I don't even know what I am. Someone told me I'm a seven. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what that means. But our preoccupation with finding ourselves, living in our strengths and giftings can become nothing more than me just 
so proud of an eye, I never notice the people around me. It's so radically different than what Paul said in Philippians. If there's any comfort in Christ, if there's any consolation from love, any partnership in the Spirit, if there's any tender affection and sympathy, make my joy complete, Paul's right. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And here's the radical thing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. You know, we could live on that verse for the rest of our lives. But in humility, regard others better than yourselves. Let each of you not look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Over and over again in the New Testament, we are told to bear one another's burdens. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, It is only when he, other Christian, is a burden that another person is really a brother and not merely an object to be manipulated. Even within the Christian community, until we take on each other's burdens, we never become true community of Jesus. But I want to identify with the cool kids, the strong ones. I want to hide their wrinkles. I want to hide the weakness. I want to be known as Kevin Knopf's friend. And all you've given me is Danny Sebo. One of the most worrying trends is the constant talk about toxic people. I saw this shirt in Spain. I don't even know if they know what it said. Losing friends, finding peace. That's a common conversation now that you just need to cut out all the toxic people. Now, I'm not talking about real abuse, and there's other things. I'm not talking about those things. But it's become such a mantra of our culture to cut out the toxic people. And I think what Paul would say is, but we're all toxic people. I think what Paul is getting at is, you're honoring the weaker part. That's your perception. But they're looking at you, Corinthian church, and they think you're the weaker part. And until you both fess up and admit we're all a little toxic, we'll never come to the point where we begin to love and serve and bear one another's burdens. And we can't keep avoiding each other by pretending. But we must get involved in the lives of each other. I'm telling you, Choosing to be involved in the mess of one another is not for the faint of heart. But it's for people who are so overwhelmed by the grace of Jesus that they're willing to not live independent lives, but to say, how can I serve you? We're addicted to finding the perfect church. And Paul is begging the Corinthians as they're fighting about what the right kind of community is. Will you just simply embrace the church that God has given you? I'm not talking about 
Sunday morning service. I'm talking about the community, and that's here. It's Chi Alpha. Will you embrace the community of God as it is and not as you want it to be? Finally, and I'm closing with this, because that's why I said finally. <laughs> Pastor, Pastor Blab, I don't know what that was. Embracing the people of God, and I've been leading into this, keeps us in shared grace. One of the scriptures, and I think even Pete and I talked about this even a couple years ago, that has been running in my mind over and over again as we've gone through this cultural moment where the church seems more interested in yelling at lost people than engaging them, is the story that Jesus tells, the parable he tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified, rather than the other, For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Even in our church world, when we begin looking at communities of faith we want to belong to, we really start looking to a church as kind of a product to be consumed. We want to belong to the church that has the right aesthetic. We want to belong to the church that is the newly discovered church, the uber-relevant. It's almost like a new band. I remember one time I mentioned a band to my kids that I thought was cool, and I ruined it for them because once I knew about it, right, it was uncool. It's kind of how we treat our church world right now. Well, once everybody's going there, like, I'm done with it. I'm not sure the new, hipper, cooler church. I mean, we give sermons thumbs up. You know? watching online during COVID, people are like, you know, good sermon, bad. And people like actually put bad sermon. I'm like, you know, what do you know? (laughs) I went to seminary. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we kind of judge our church by whether or not they have a cool enough logo sticker to put on our water bottle. You know what I'm saying? We're making decisions like the Christian community is a product. And that's just another form of the Pharisee's prayer. Thank God I'm not like those other kinds of churches. There's other kinds of people. Now, to be clear, you've got a church, church that preaches the good news. I mean, there's some basic things, but the radical thing I'm talking about is even our choice of church can be more about being a part of the right crowd than about embracing the grace community. When we see the church as a product, we see it as a consumable. It's a smorgasbord of spiritual items let out before you. We get to choose which one to prefer. It's like a... Uh, you know, a buffet. I don't have to eat the broccoli. I guess you have to choose the things I like. When we see it on an event, all of a sudden, online church makes sense. Online church. Yeah, I get the pandemic. I, we have our stuff on, on social media. I'm talking about, but living as if online is church is impossible. Because we're meant to be with people in the mess of lives. And you can't do that from your room alone. The community is like a body. When we think of church as a product, we see it as optional. If it doesn't get in the way, 
But Paul says it's essential. But Jesus frees us from all this superficial community. We don't have to be cool anymore. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Pretending we're anything else but weaker parts is ridiculous. We spend so much time trying to be on the inside, even if Christian communities get by the VIP rope. But Jesus and his kingdom is founded on this thing. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the gift of being involved in the messiness of church, of the Christian community, is God's arrangement for your transformation. C.S. Lewis, again, weight of glory. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. You know, there's something about being around other messy people that makes point. If we really embrace it, don't fight it, but embrace it, all of a sudden we kind of have a mirror to our own souls. I did not come from a broken family like Danny Sebo. But by rubbing shoulders with him, I came to realize that although I never called him fatty or bullied him, the reality is I didn't want to be his friend. But by being around him, I realized it was sinful, even as a nine-year-old. But that never would have happened if I would have not been around Danny Sebo. I wasn't a new immigrant, a foreigner, as he was called, J. Min Yoon. But I, by being his friend, by being in his home, I realized there were other people who had more bigger challenges about fitting in than even I did. And I had a newfound appreciation for immigrant families. I see, when we get involved in the mess of other people, we realize we're the toxic person. I've often wondered why God brought a stupid church kid, pastor's kid, and made me a missionary because I didn't even actually grow up around anybody but Christians, for the most part. And I've come to the conclusion, it's not so much that he needed a laborer in the field, although he does, want us to join him. But somehow, my own faith, as I rub up against the secular people of Spain, see how messed up they are without Jesus? I begin to see grace fresh and anew in my own life. Thank God made me a missionary because he wanted me to love him more. By rubbing up against a broken world of people who live without any access to the gospel. I've always joked that I would never go to my own church. <laughs> the one that we pastor along with our team in Granada. Because man, did we set the bar low. <laughs> our music is so ordinary. 
Our space is ugly. I designed our logo. It's so ordinary. But you know, our Spanish friends who don't have access to the gospel, they find grace and forgiveness and love in the most plain, ordinary, boring circumstance. And I learned it's about Jesus. It's not about being a cool church. So I just ask us together, will we walk together in a community of grace? Will I attend to where I belong? Will I embrace the community of God as it is? And Will I walk in a community of grace? After winning that football match and the winning touchdown, the cool kids, frustrated, stomped off the field. Kevin Knopf actually said, good game. But nothing fundamentally changed in my relationships with any of the cool kids. I was still a nerd. But what had changed was my relationship with the weaker and unpresentable people. And I realized I was one too. All of us were very different. We had a bond, though, that was deeper than just temp the moment. Eric and Mark, the twins, became my new playmates. They lived down the street. Tommy Greening. I remember seeing him in his green turtleneck and brown pants, and he recited a poem as a part of an assignment. He was like an early beatnik or something. I don't know what the deal was. But he loved literature. And I remember thinking, wow, books are cooler than I thought. Tommy Greening introduced me to poetry. From Jamie Noon, a Korean kid, he led me to a world beyond. Not just foods and language, but just seeing that the world was far bigger than my white bread world I grew up in. And a poor, heavy-set kid named Danny Sebo taught a four-year-old or four-eyed nine-year-old boy what loyalty and friendship means. Look around you right now. Like, literally, look around you right now. In this room is the community of grace. There's something special here. These are people who are redeemed. They're your family. They're followers of Jesus, miracles of grace. They're Holy Spirit gifted people. Yes, we're all toxic, but something happens when we gather together and get involved in the mess of each other's lives. And all of a sudden, it's not just Sunday worship or Monday night live that's just a break in our week. Instead, there's something transcendent, a belonging to the people of God. It takes Monday night live or Sunday church from just being a break to the celebration of an awesome God. It takes a small group Bible study from just a spiritual exercise into a band of brothers and sisters. It moves us from acquaintances into eternal friendship. It makes us more like Jesus. So I ask us, will we be the church or not?
Would you stand with me? Worship team, come up. Man, I preached a long time. Sorry, Pete. Here's how we're going to respond. And it's going to be a little awkward because we're going to move a little bit, but I want us to lose what God is saying to us. I just want core groups to get together. I think most of you are sitting together anyway. And I just want you to pray that you would become the daring, radical, covenant people of God together. Small group leaders, take some initiative in how you want to guide that time. But I just want us to embrace being the people of God and to commit to it once again. So the worship team is going to just begin to play some music and just find some spaces and gather together and just ask God to help you become who he wants us to be for another. Then commit to share one another's burdens and sorrows and joys and just to be the people of God and to work into you the kind of covenant, community covenant, that will take you not just through these years at UVA, but for the rest of your lifetime. You become the people, wherever you go, who are initiators of the divine covenant of grace one to another. Can we do that? Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.